Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My guest today is Professor Maya Matarik, who is Professor of Computer Science, Neuroscience and Pediatrics at the University of Southern California. Her research is focused on developing personalized human-robot interaction methods for behavior change aimed at health, wellness, rehabilitation, training and education. Welcome, Maya. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so thanks for doing this. So, um I saw uh, a lot of papers in 2021 you and your lab uh, I would imagine have been extremely productive sometimes the, you know there there's some good things about pandemics I guess um so so I want to start with uh, one of them uh, designing a socially assistive robot to support older adults with low vision you say socially assistive robots SARs have shown great promise in supplementing and augmenting interventions to support the physical and mental well-being of older adults cover past work has not yet explored the potential of applying sar with the social assistive robots to lower the barriers of long-term low vision rehabilitation lbr interventions for older adults um Yeah, I find this extremely interesting, Maya. So, um, I mean, we we have some sort of interventions, medical interventions, therapeutic interventions for low vision. This is sort of mechanical and robotic intervention, right? So, you want to talk a bit about that? Definitely. So, the important thing to understand about social assistive robotics is that it's different from pretty much all other robotics. So, when you think about robots, you think about robots doing some physical work after all the word robot comes from robota which is check for basically menial labor um and you know robotics was developed for dirty dull and dangerous tasks but the kind of robotics that we do um is not about robots doing physical things it's about robots uh helping people do their own work 
by motivating them, supporting them, really providing a social support, not physical support. And so what does that mean for uh, individuals with low vision? Uh, specifically the, the area that we're working on, and I should say this comes from our collaborator, Professor uh, Eva Bittner at UCLA, who brought the problem to us. She reached out and she said, look, I'm interested in motivating older adults with low vision um, to use a magnifier. And what is the challenge there? It seems like, oh, well, you can't see, you should just use a magnifier. But in fact, whenever it comes to these things that are, that are psychologically difficult for us, right? I mean, why don't we quit smoking and exercise more and eat all the salads all the time, right? Well, this stuff is just hard. Why, why don't people exercise six hours a day after they've had a stroke to regain function? It's hard. It's hard physically. It's hard psychologically. It's hard emotionally. And so the whole idea of these robots is to encourage, to motivate, to provide a little guidance and a lot of support. And so for low vision, it's really an issue of telling people it's time to read. It's time to use the magnifier. Oh, do you have the magnifier? Where is the magnifier? Oh, how is it going? Well, maybe you should twist it a little bit to the left. Oh, this is great. You're going for 10 minutes. Wow. So how about trying for 15 tomorrow? All of these things that constitute social support, which would be great to get from other people, but unfortunately, many times for many populations, that kind of support is not available. And that's why technology steps in, into that gap. Yeah, so it's a set of heuristics that might help them um, in the absence of uh, some other human being, the robot could actually give them some ideas. You know, I was thinking back, uh, Maya, that, um, I did some work in the mid 80s. We used to call it expert systems. Uh, then it's now largely called artificial intelligence uh, at Northwestern University, where we were using sort of graduate student feedback uh, and trying to figure out how does the graduate student think about design, these are engineering designs, and can we assist them to uh, get them to think um, better, so to speak. Uh, and uh, obviously very cool technology, uh, first IBM PC and so on. Um, but we now have really good um, technologies. So, so this is sort of an attempt at saying, yeah, don't think about robots as a mechanical thing that does work, as you say, but rather something that could be assistive to a human being when another human being is not present, right? I lost your audio, Maya. Right. Um so definitely. In fact, um, I remember expert systems. I, expert systems were popular when I was in grad school as well. Um, so the idea here is indeed that we as human beings are wired to be very social. This is just how we are. And so we tend to be most influenced by social um, factors. When people are physically close and around us, they have the most influence on us just, just because that's how we're wired, right? So we're interested in these physically embodied agents. So that's why we're not only working on, let's say, apps or things on the screen. Um, there Certainly, screens can have a lot of influence on us, and they do, and they're shaping lives left and right today, not necessarily for the better. Um, but really, to tap into our motivation, something that motivates us and influences us the most, 
um, is a social and physical presence of others like ourselves. And so that's what we're trying to leverage with these systems. That's why they're robots and not just screens. But in terms of what they do, uh, we really are taking information from cognitive science, social science, neuroscience, and even these days, behavioral economics, in order to help people basically help themselves, right? So this idea of behavior change, it's very hard. Um, and so, you know, it, it really depends on what your specific needs are, what is your specific situation, what are things that are blocking you from doing better. And so a lot of what we do is using theories from these other sciences to develop systems and then personalizing them through machine learning. And the personalizing is really important because no one size fits all. Not only does it not fit all people, but it doesn't fit the same person over time as we change. Yeah. Yeah, behavioral economics is also quite interesting. So, uh, an individual's um, actions are based on some sort of valuation, let's say. Um, and so, given a set of options, the individual is going to select something that is more dominant from an economic perspective. Um, it's quite interesting to me. Um, so, I mean, I think we are getting better at this, right? So when we we have robots now that look like humans, and and I think that is a pretty important thing, right? From a from a psychological perspective, do humans interact better with uh, machines that look like humans? That's a really good question, and in fact, uh, we certainly don't have enough to call it a science yet in terms of how physical embodiment, so the appearance of a robot influences a person. Um, there's, there have been a lot of studies, um, but you know, we don't know yet. So beware of anyone who tells you how it is because we don't know. So that's the, that's the truth. Uh, but there have been some very consistent uh, results that people have found. So it is definitely not the case that a machine needs to look like a human in order to be effective, accepted, um, even you know, really, really like you know, really uh, kind of um, a hook for people. So people like robots that look like uh, like the Roomba vacuum cleaner, for example. There's been a lot of work to show that people just love their Roombas and they think of them almost like pets, and they believe that their Roomba knows them and that it can do things that they objectively know it cannot. So we're not talking about people being fooled. We're talking about people engaging and suspending disbelief. And that's important to understand because it doesn't mean that the machine has to look like a human. It doesn't even mean that the machine has to be extremely smart. Um, but it really depends on the user and the context, right? So, you know, I have a Roomba also, but somehow because of, of knowing people who built it, it doesn't, I only see it as a robot, right? Uh, but I might have some other technology that I really like to engage with. Um, my graduate students who develop their own robots, so they know all the way down to like, you know, every little piece on it, how it works, yet they're still influenced by it. Um, we have a fun story of a student some years ago. She's now a professor at a major university, so I won't give names, uh, but I will say that, and she's wonderful and very successful, but I will say that she was debugging a robot and, and the robot was supposed to help a stroke patient. And so the robot would say things like, oh, you're doing really well, or he would say, come on, you can do better. But she kept using the, come on, you can do better. And she was really, really grumpy after a while. And so my other students said, you know, how about if you use the positive, when you're debugging, how about if you use the positive phrase all the time? Because we really think that this negative, kind of uh, encouraging but, but pushy phrase is making you frustrated because you keep hearing it. 
And she said, no, it can't be. I programmed him. Surely not. But they said, yeah, okay, but how about if you switch it? And she did. And of course, it completely changed her mood over a period of time. So, so my point there is simply that we are affected by technology, regardless of how well we may understand it, even if we created it. Um, you know, we are social creatures. And if we're surrounded by social influences by technology, they have an impact on us. And so what we try to do is we try to create um, the influence that is positive towards the health goals that of the of the user. Yeah, I was thinking, Maya, that it's a bit counterintuitive. So for 100,000 years, we only saw humans and perhaps animals. And then last 100 years, we started seeing machines. I would imagine our brains are not really tuned to machines, right? I mean, when we are empathetic, when we see feelings, when we take instructions from something, I would imagine our brains are looking for human-like things, aren't we? Um, no, our brains are looking for lifelike things. So our brains are definitely tuned to look for things that look like they have um, agency. So the idea of agency is that um, some entity is doing things purposefully. Right. So even a, va a vacuum cleaner on the floor, you know, it's going around, it's avoiding obstacles and, you know, it's exploring new areas, going to where, you know, it may find dirt. That's purposeful. Right. So we are tuned to notice random behavior and wonder what it's about and to find repetitive behavior not intelligent because repetitive behavior does not sound like uh, life. Right. Life like creatures do not do things, you know, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And so, in fact, we are tuned, you know, because we are animals, we are tuned to respond to lifelike purposeful things mm. or things that look like they're purposeful. And then we will perceive a purpose in it. That's why when we see even simple things on the screen that move around, we often will think like, oh, look, that one is shy and that one is aggressive and this one is chasing that one where that may not, not actually be what's happening. Right. So that's how we're wired. But it is really important to know that it does not have to do with being human. Um, so, you know, we see this with animals. We perceive it in animals. We People people see purpose in their pets. Um, you know, it's, it's not really about being human. And that's important because when we build machines that look like humans, things get much, much more complex. Because once you have a human-like machine, now there's a whole lot of bias that we bring to that, right? So... What do you think the gender of the machine is? Well, you know, if I build a robot that looks like a human, you can't help yourself but think that it must have some gender, even though I may, as a designer, not really even think about it. Like, why? It's not anything. It's just a robot. Oh, but it is something to you. Implicitly, it is. And in fact, there's more and more work now about, you know, why is it that most people think most robots are male? You know, why is that? We don't know. Um, but it is a feature of us as humans that we might want to be careful about, right? So that's just one example. So once you yeah. go into human-like, you can fall into this thing called the uncanny valley where people create things that look very realistic, but because they don't behave very realistically, they look creepy. Um, and that is to be avoided at all costs. So it's better to go for simplicity than to try to look complex and perfect and then fail utterly. Yeah, that's a great insight, Maya. So I never thought about this. So what you're saying is that it's really sort of humans look for agency, not really sort of perceptive uh, data. 
it's really can be a sign. So, so we watch cartoons, for example. And even if the cartoon characters are not human looking, uh, it can be any, any sort of things. We could assign agency right to them and then understand them. Exactly. And the way I like to think about it is I like to draw a distinction between something that's believable and something that's realistic. So you can have a cartoon, just like you said, that's really believable, even though it's not realistic. You know how cartoons can run off a cliff and still stay running in place before they fall. Completely not realistic physics. Oh, but it's very believable, right? And their eyes can pop out. And we know it's not real, but it is very believable. And we find it very compelling and influential and engaging. Uh, whereas you can create something that's very, very believa believable. I mean, sorry. Whereas you can create something that's very realistic, but it's not engaging at all. Um, and in fact, in computer graphics, in the early days when people were exploring with very realistic animation, they found that they could make it realistic, but it still kind of looked creepy um, and it wasn't appealing. Of course, we're past that now. Now we can make things that are so realistic that people can't even tell the difference. You know, that's okay. how we have the, the deep fakes and everything else. Yeah, so I want to go into another paper that's sort of related. Uh, modeling user empathy elicited by robot storyteller. Uh, you say virtual and robotic agents capable of perceiving human empathy have the potential to participate in engaging in meaningful uh, human machine interactions that support human well being. Prior research in computational empathy, uh, I want to uh, dig a little deep into computational empathy, uh, has focused on designing uh, empathetic agents that use verbal and nonverbal behaviors to stimulate, or sorry, to simulate empathy and attempt to elicit empathetic responses from humans. So this this has been sort of a, a big area, right? Um, yeah. Empathy is a, it's a very complex phenomenon. Um, we used to think that humans have it, uh, but we can see it in a lot of animals, um, uh, the same sort of emotion. Uh, we haven't been able to replicate that in in uh, machines yet, I would imagine, right? So, so where are we now in this robot storyteller? Well, first of all, you're exactly right. Empathy is an incredibly complex and important um, capability and, and propensity that people and some animals have. Um, and in fact, one can argue that we could use more empathy these days because um, there, there are definitely results that show that in more empathetic societies, people tend to be happier, they tend to support one another more. It's intuitive, as you'd expect. And in more polarized society where you see less empathy, um, people's health and, and happiness outcomes are worse. And I'm sorry to say we're currently, in the U.S. anyway, in a very polarized society. So empathy is not doing too well. Um, but it's, it's an interesting question to think about what empathy really is. So we are inspired by the work of... Um, Baron Cohen, who has shown and discussed that empathy is really what you do, not what you feel. So people usually think about empathy as being something that you feel. But we, we don't have access to each other's feelings, right? We can't often even tell what we're feeling ourselves. That's one of the problems, right? You can't tell, like, are you having a panic attack or, you know, what's happening, right? So feelings are tricky, but behavior is less tricky. And really, people who behave empathetically help themselves and others. And so, for example, doctors are taught to show empathy, whether they feel it or not. Um, and doctors who show empathy 
are much more popular and loved by their patients. And that's good for patients. So clearly it's a good strategy. So what does this tell us? This tells us that robots can behave empathetically and therefore help people, even though they can't actually feel empathy because they can't feel because they don't feel because they're not made out of, you know, soft, juicy stuff that our brains and nerves are made of. Um, but that's okay because we're not typically in robotics. We're not trying to recreate humans or animals. What we're trying to do is fulfill functions, right? So one function is very generally to help people. So if I want to make someone feel better with a robot, um, you know, the robot should empathet be empathetic. It should behave like it has empathy so that the person can feel that someone has empathy. Uh, do, is another human really empathetic? What are they feeling? I don't know. But I like them to act like they're empathetic because in the end, what do you have to lose? Empathy is what you do in the moment. Yeah. Um, but let me say something else on that front. We have not focused so much on making robots behave empathetically. Our focus is actually in getting robots to make, to make people be empathetic. So that's the next level. That's most of our work is about getting people to do something, not getting robots to do something, right? And so suppose that we agree that empathy is good for people. How can we teach children to be more empathetic? How can we encourage people to be more empathetic? Well, it turns out empathy is generally contagious, right? So if someone is empathetic to you, then you are more likely to be empathetic to them. And so we're trying to create these robots, like the robot storyteller, which will tell a story about itself or about someone else to you and, and get you to feel empathetic. It's trying to elicit, to draw out empathy from you. In a sense, it's trying to train you to be empathetic. So that's our goal. It's really about people, not robots, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I'm a bit conflicted about this, Maya. So uh, I just want to ask you this. So it sounds to me that um, empathy is sort of a little bit of an artificial construct that you can teach doctors to be empathetic. You can teach other human beings to show empathy. You can even teach robots to teach others to be empathetic. Um, it sort of devalues the idea of empathy. <laughs> You know, in my oh, view. does it? Is it like when you understand how a, a plane flies, it devalues flight? I don't think so. I think no, this well, is what really. I mean is that, yeah. No, I don't. No, I, I, I'm going to challenge you back and say, why do you think that not understanding something makes it better? We understand. If I told you that empathy is just a particular set of neurons firing, does that make it any less worthwhile? It doesn't. Right. 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 So, I mean, what are feelings? We don't really understand emotions just yet, but ultimately they're results of our brains and our bodies and physiology, and we're going to understand them someday. And is that going to make them somehow lesser? No, it isn't, right? Because it's not magic that makes things amazing. It's what they do in the world. So I push back. Yeah, so the, the reason I'm saying that, Maya, is that, you know, we have a lot of ethics courses in business schools. If, uh, you know, very soon we're going to see empathy, empathy classes in business schools. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the idea would be to uh, make somebody look empathetic. And you know, that person won't be, won't have, won't feel any empathy. But, you know, just like doctors going to a patient looks empathetic. It, it's sort of a, uh, it's sort of a learned 
uh, outward emotion that doesn't really mean much to the person. Uh, so that that's what I mean. I, I don't know if this is true. I'm I'm just debating with you. Uh, could we, you know, if you make empathy sort of a manufacturable emotion, uh, everybody will get on it. You know, it's there's not... going to be video classes and everything. Well, Go first ahead, of all, sorry. I think it would be good if we had empathy training um, because it's sort of like, let me make an analogy to um, uh, etiquette. So people used to be trained about how to behave. They used to be trained to say, you know, please and thank you and take turns and not interrupt. Um, and was that real? I mean, what makes it real or not real? If the rule is to behave a certain way, then you behave a certain way. And the result is that people say please and thank you and don't interrupt. Now, if we throw those rules out and no one observes them, then, you know, people don't have etiquette and they're, you know, outcomes of that. At what is real or more real? So if you say, so empathy is how you treat other people. So, you know, if we take a sociopath, but they're following rules and behaving nicely, then how are they a sociopath? If they never do anything inappropriate, what makes them a sociopath? The thing inside their head? I don't care. I don't care what's inside their head. What I care is what they do to the world around them. So that's that's really, if you if you consider that the mind is what the brain does, and we are the actions that we have in the world around us, that's what matters. What matters is what we do, not what we think and feel. Because what we think and feel, after all, doesn't necessarily impact the world. What matters is how we impact the world. So if teaching empathy makes people behave better to one another, isn't that what matters? Yeah, that's an important point. Um, so from a purely utilitarian perspective, even if you're not truly empathetic, if you behave as if you're empathetic, it has it has value for society, is right. what you're saying, and and so just like you say, you know how you behave has value to society, and empathy increasingly is an important component of that component of how you believe, uh, how you behave. Um, but at the end of the day, it may not you may not be really empathetic, right? I mean, there there are there's a group of people who are really empathetic, right? They don't have to act empathetic. But what you're saying is that acting empathetic is equally useful, equally valuable for society. It's much more valuable. It's much more valuable. Uh, let me put it this way. Um, suppose that you are incredibly sad and lonely and you have no friends and you really, you know, you're suppose you're a child on the spectrum, autism, incredibly many children this way, and nobody will play with you. And I am another child and I feel so sorry for you, but I never say anything and I never do anything. What good is that to the world and to you and to me? Now, suppose I'm another child who doesn't really care, but my mom said, you have to go talk, go play with that other lonely kid. And so I go and I play with you. And, you know, maybe I even have fun, but you certainly now have a friend. Now, who has done more for the world? And see, that's the whole point. It's like the person who doesn't act who cares what they think and feel? I mean, yes, yeah. of course, I'm sorry if they feel bad, but what has that done for the world? You know, yeah. so that's that's really, that is the point. Yeah, I understand that. So I don't want to spend too much time on this. So what you're saying sorry. is that the norms of, norms of society 
um, has significant value to society in general. You know, if, if you, uh, so even if you just you know sort of behave in a in a way society expects you to believe, even if you don't believe in it, let's say, it still has significant value. Uh, and empathy is being it being part of it, right? So, so I want to go into another one that's sort of related, but um, thinking about the mathematics of it. So, you have a paper uh, affect aware deep belief uh, network representations for multimodal unsupervised deception detection. Um, you say automated systems that detect the social behavior of deception can enhance human well-being across medical, social work, and legal domains labeled data sets to train supervised description, uh, supervised deception detection models can really be uh, collected for real world high stake, high stakes context. So that makes a lot of sense. So uh, supervised machine learning here basically saying, we know some when somebody is deceptive, we know somebody is not deceptive, we got a bunch of data and we train a machine, but we don't typically have that. So we have a bunch of data some people are deceptive, some people are not deceptive, but the attributes of those data sets, uh, of those cases, I should say. And, and you're using uh, DBNs, deep belief networks, in an unsupervised way to say, can we actually detect deception, right? So the deception research is really interesting. It's by actually an undergraduate student of mine, so she's just incredibly talented. And it started out by, um, she actually found data of uh, court testimonies, right? So people who were testifying in court um, and then some were lying and some were not. And so these were labeled data. And so you could do supervised learning because you knew examples. Um, now she has found subsequently that she can do this in an unsupervised way. So she doesn't even need to know in advance who is lying and who is not, which is amazing. And it tells us something about signs of lying. It tells us that human signs of lying are very consistent across cultures and across situations, which is interesting. It's not true for many other things, but it is true for deception. Um, it is also true that humans are incredibly bad at detecting deception. We're basically a chance. And even people who are trained to detect deception are very bad at it. So, you know, you might think that there are certain professions that are supposed to be good at it, they're still really, really, really bad compared to machines. So this is interesting, but it is of course scary because the idea that you could have machines that can tell in real time whether you're lying all around you, that's, that's definitely worrisome, right? So the work that I am familiar with is actually looking at detecting deception in people who are uh, potentially child molesters. So the stakes are very high here because that's particularly a group that does that has a high rate of recidivism, right? So if you don't detect it early, there could be, uh, you know, a real negative impact on many lives. Um, so there's always that side, right? There's a side of we do things that we do because they can make a tremendous positive impact. But of course, as most technologies, as most anything, there is a potential downside, right? So you don't want this state of, uh, you know, cameras everywhere reporting on you, whether you're lying or not, especially given that an average human tells something like five lies a day, I believe. I think that's the, I mean, they're mostly tiny white lies, but we do it all At the least. time. So, you know, the studies have been done on this, right? I'm, I'm not, this is not my 
my work, but you know, there's work in social science to show that we are just, we lie all the time and we do it usually just, you know, out of like goodwill or white lies, right? You're not, you know, you're just doing it to not hurt someone's feelings, etc. Um, so yeah, so I think, you know, there's, there's always um, this really important consideration about this collection of basically ethics, privacy, and security that we always have to take into, like we always have to worry about that whenever we develop anything. And I really, really challenge students, not just my students, but students in computing these days, they have such power in their hands. They're developing the, the cutting edge um, technologies for everything. And I think they're not thinking very hard about the implications. They're chasing that next really well-paying job. Uh, and there's so many of them now. Um, but they're not necessarily thinking, what are they doing and why are they doing it? So I always like to challenge them to think about, why are you doing this? And what's the world going to look like when you do this? Um, you know, because unfortunately, their employers do not ask them to think that way. And there's something right. wrong with that. There's something wrong with that. So the the, the um, I find this really interesting, Maya. So the, the mathematical way to detect deception without labeled data in an unsupervised way I mean, we just had an election, 75, I, I fully agree with you, um, humans are pretty bad at detecting deception. There are 75 million people who couldn't detect deception. And uh, I would imagine there'll be 75 million people in the next election who couldn't detect deception either. So machines are significantly better, I think, um, in, in, this, in this dimension. Yeah, so the, the, you know, if we were to go into the large national scale and, and you know, th there's a whole world of social media and social media influence, and that isn't what we work on at all. In particular, I'm really interested in physically co-present interactions, right? So, like, two of us are in the same room, or at least if we're not in the same room, it's like this, right, where we're over, you know, a, a video and audio connection. So we can at least get these back channel cues, right? You can see my my face, you can see my body movement, you can see my arms. That's really important. Um, when that all gets taken away, if you're just texting or doing worse yet anonymous, uh, you know, postings, then you've taken away all of these uh, social cues and social contracts, right? So you don't have to be empathetic. You don't have to tell the truth. All these things happen, right? And And there are negative, well, negative consequences on a large scale as we've seen. Um, yeah, scary stuff. Yeah, but I'm not sure if social cues really do it. Uh, so, so what's your explanation, Maya, that I don't want to, I, we don't talk politics uh, on this show, but what's your explanation of 75 million people, we don't have to talk any, mention any names, but 75 million people voted for Mr. X in the last election, even though the data was really, really robust from a deception perspective. So what, what is the explanation of that? Well, so first of all, again, not my area of expertise at all. I'm <laughs> just like a regular person like everyone else on that. But, I, you know, there's so many, there's so many reasons there, right? So first of all, people are, in general, very in-group tribal animals, right? This is why we're so successful as a species. Like, we protect our own and we tend to, you know, shun or worse, everything, everything that's different. Um, and that could be a strength, right? When we all huddle together against the common enemy. But we so love to huddle together against the common enemy 
that we make up enemies and we make conspiracy theories in order to bond us. I mean, this is why we have sports, right? Sports are like a, a, a fake battle because we need battles. We need teams. We need sides. We, we need to have an enemy in order to bond. Um, but that's problematic, right? Because then when you have a mechanism that can perpetuate um, things that are not facts and that are not true, um, that just allows people to say, oh, you know, we can bond over this. Um, and there's no, there's also no culture for checking the truth, right? People talk about it as like this new notion of truth. Well, what does that mean? How can there be a new notion of truth for scientists like me? You know, their data. And then there's this other thing that people are very confused about. They keep saying, people who are not scientists keep saying things like, but scientists disagree. It's like, no, scientists agree on things that are known, and then they theorize and hypothesize, hypothesize about things that are not known, and that's what they disagree on until they know. But, you know, we're like, we don't disagree on DNA. I mean, it's, it's, it's a thing that we know is real. But I think that's also, again, it's people not really either being educated enough or choosing to quote things that they've learned in school, right? It's like you learned all of this in school, but now you're ignoring it all um, because of the emotional belonging to a tribe thing. We're just very tribal. I think that's a yes. major part of it. So, so I wanted to ask you this. So from a mathematical perspective, the clan effect or the tribal effect that you talk about, um, deception has to rise to certain threshold value before the clan recognizes that to be deception. Because a tribal effect or the clan effect is going to sort of kill off your expectation of deception, right? So, so when you think about DBNs and, and mathematical modeling of this, do we, does that figure into the, the mathematics in some way? If it does, I don't know. It's outside of my area because, um, again, we don't work on that. But I would say let's look at the vaccination prospect, right? So we know the facts. We, in fact, know that, you know, people who are unvaccinated, especially with the Delta variant, are getting sick more and they're dying more. And what more evidence could you want? Like, so if I'm, suppose I'm in a group that doesn't believe in vaccinations, but others, including myself, are dying who also choose that belief. Um would that not be evidence enough? And yes, you see stories where people say, oh, this has made me change my mind. But it's a very expensive way to change your mind. Um, so I don't know if people are, if people choose to believe things in spite of the evidence, then I'm not sure what that's, you know, this is what we're grappling with right now internationally. Um, so if I knew the answer to that, you know, wouldn't that be great? Um, but I don't know. Um, so all we can do, certainly from a, from a computing perspective is, you know, we can model, right? So we can do things like we can develop models and we can predict what happens if this is what happens, what happens if this, and people have done that, right? They've done it in the context of the pandemic. Most of what happened was predicted. It's not a surprise. People behave like it's a surprise, but it's not a surprise. Um, it's just unfortunate because this was one outcome, but it didn't have to be this one. It could have been an outcome with many fewer dead people, right? And then we cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we already know that there are possible outcomes, right? And some of them are bad, really bad, like bad variants that defy all vaccines. And then hopefully some of them are better and we are all hoping for the better one. Um, so we can predict, it's, it's really, it is not at all unpredictable. We just don't know which of the predictions will turn out to be right. And it's up to us. Yeah, and it's the thing, you know, from an AI perspective, irrational 
robot would be the most unnatural thing because humans are not quite rational. Not it, at it all. sounds to me that you have to you have to have a threshold. Um, you, you have to get over a threshold of bias before you make a decision that is rational. And so most of them are sort of in that in that band. Microsoft had a, as you know, had a robot called the Twitter girl. And uh, in, in, you know, in one month, uh, she was spewing all sorts of bad stuff on, <laughs> on Twitter, uh, just learning from what humans are saying. So, so, so from an AI kind of a robotic design perspective, a rational robot would be very unnatural thing, right? I mean, humans yeah. are completely rational. No, human, yeah, exactly. Humans are not rational at all. And in fact, the entire field of economics wants to believe that people are rational. And then more and more evidence is to the contrary. And that's why economics is giving Nobel Prizes to psychologists, right? So famously, Danny Kahneman, uh, Richard Thaler, all of these people who basically show how irrational people are. And then they get a Nobel Prize for it, which I'm glad they're getting the Nobel Prize for it. But it seems like a no-brainer to me. Like, all you have to do is look around yourself or at yourself. Um, so, yes, but the, the problem with math is that it's it's really much harder to model things that are not rational. Rationality is much easier to model, right? It's mathematically clean, um, but people aren't like that. And so, in fact, you're exactly right that when we want robots to be um, accepted, acceptable to people and appealing and engaging, we want them to be in those ways more like people, right? So we want them to be, you know, not robotic. So what does it mean to be a not robotic robot? Well, you shouldn't be totally predictable. You shouldn't be totally repeatable. Um, you don't have to be rational, right? But you certainly shouldn't be like the boring, rational, you know, the images of androids that we've seen in, in science fiction, uh, all kinds of good science fiction and bad science fiction too. Um, but that's not necessary. I think that a robot doesn't have to be irrational to appear appealing. It just shouldn't be like, well, it is clear that now you must do. I mean, who talks like that, right? But there's no reason why the robot should talk like that. They already don't today. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is a very interesting culture design question, which is if you want to make robots more human-like, you have to give them biases. You have to give them some sort of stochastic characteristics. Um, the human brain is not very stable organ <laughs> you know uh, you cannot uh, humans are sometimes not very predictable the way that they given the same situation they might do something completely different in, in situation b compared to situation a so there has to be some sort of uncertainty introduced to robotic designs is that is that how you think about it so first of all, we always have uncertainty um, that this is the thing with robotics. Robotics is all about uncertainty because there's uncertainty about perception in the real world. Um, but that's different from the social behavior, which you're right. You don't want it to be repeatable and boring. But again, I don't know if that means irrational, right? So I think you can have noise, but that's not the same as bias. In fact, I highly recommend um, uh, Danny Kahneman's and with co-authors most recent book called Noise, which shows about which talks about how people make irrational decisions all the time. Like we're terrible at estimating. I mean, it's a great book. I, re I recommend it. Um, 
that's not the same as bias. Bias is actually more consistent, right? So bias is something that you do consistently um, for various reasons, none of which may be good. Who knows? Maybe, you know, maybe you have a good bias, right? Like you just tend to be grateful to people and, and you know, smiley and happy and empathetic. That's a good bias, right? Um, but bias is something consistent, whereas noise can be very, like, for example, if I asked you, to estimate something today and then I ask you to estimate that same thing tomorrow and three days from now, your estimates will be totally different. Even though you think you're being, you're doing your best, and, but in fact, they're going to be different. And if we average them all out, that will be the best solution, which is just, you know, uh, regression to the mean, which is well known mathematically, but it turns out to be true for our judgment as well. So, yeah. so people are both noisy and biased. And it's important to understand ways in which we're irrational. Both of these things are irrational. Um, and if we want to make a machine that's like a human, we have to model both of these. But again, I don't think our goal is to make machines that are like people. I think our goal is to make machines that solve problems for us. So being like a human is not a problem. But helping people do things like whatever, assembling cars and... Uh, you know, sequencing DNA and recovering from a stroke and um, learning skills when they have a disability. Now, those are things that need to be solved. And then you say, OK, how do I solve that in a way like if it were if it means I have to work with people, I need to create this robot that people will find appealing and trustworthy. But that doesn't mean it has to be irrational. You know, right. But it's isn't it two different problems, Maya? So assembling an automobile. We already do that. I mean, it's a mechanistic problem, but assisting a human with a disability is not really a mechanistic problem, is it? Well, certainly if we talk about car assembly as an automated task, I don't even consider that robotics anymore. That's like automation. But in fact, if you look at more interesting assembly uh, domains, it's a combination of people and machines. And now these people want to work with the machines and they want the machines to be interesting and fun. So they don't want to just be like, oh, here's the machine in a cage and then I'm over there with humans. So if they're going to work together, now they, there has to be a give and take. So that's already a challenge. So even putting uh, robots into kind of an automation setup is challenging because it has a social component. So that's just something that people don't generally tend to think of. But you're certainly right. Um, if you can solve a problem without having a person in the loop, that's a different problem. If there's a person in the loop, okay, now we're talking about all kinds of cognitive and social and rationality um, issues. And for sure, when we're helping a person recover from something, we need to understand about what they've, you know, the domain, like, is it stroke? Is it, you know, whatever it is. And then about that person specifically, you know, where are they in their recovery path? How are they, you know, are they regressing? Are they, uh, are they going really well? And then we have to understand them in the moment. How is this day right now? Are they having a bad day? Are they having a good day? Are they tired now because we've been practicing for 30 minutes? So all these things are factors and they all change over time. And that's what makes it interesting. That, yeah. But that's all unsolved. So it's a wonderful area to be in. Oh yeah, it, it, it's so interesting. You know, I was thinking that autonomous vehicles without a human is an easier problem to solve then the interaction between human and autonomous vehicles, right? That is where we are, we continue to fail. Um, and and I don't know if that is a solvable problem, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm sure at some point we'll solve it, yeah. 
I completely agree with you. That's exactly right. Like if we could switch suddenly, if we could flip a switch and now there are no drivers on the road, it's just autonomous cars, we could do that. Um, and of course, let's not also have pedestrians that run across and ride bikes, right? So we, you know, but we can't. We have a society that has to transition and that's the dangerous part because people will be people and machines can't really deal with people in all of our irrationality. And so that's why I think autonomous driving, such as it is, it's going to take a long time. This whole idea that like it'll just be cars and whatever else. No, that's that that's not happening very soon. As I as I often say, my humans are bad people. Um, <laughs> I, I just want to uh, want to finish up with a very topical subject: uh, simulation-based analysis of COVID-19 spread through classroom transmission on a university campus. A lot of people are thinking about this. So, so what have you found here in terms of um, from a policy perspective? What we should be thinking about? Well, again. This isn't my area of expertise, although, as it happens, I am on a paper uh, with a team of uh, researchers from USC who did some really nice analysis, and they did it. I provided the data, so I can only take credit for the data. I gave, we, we looked at the data on uh, how students, students and student behavior before the pandemic, and then we assessed basically the role of masking and physical distancing. And again, you know, it's just incredibly clear and obvious that something like you know and and these people did the modeling of everything like the aerosolizing of particles and who is talking and who is quiet in a classroom and basically um it's very clear that you know if people are masking it makes a huge improvement in terms of spread the reduced spread and then of course with delta things are worse right because it's just so much more you know the probability of getting it if you are exposed is so much higher um, than it used to be pre-Delta. But we have some really nice numbers that very rationally show, you know, if I take patterns of student behavior pre-pandemic and then I impose pandemic behavior over it with and without masks, the numbers are just hugely different. Hmm. And then we did it also, um, we, we also showed it pre and post-Delta. And now we have, now universities have actual numbers, right? Because now we are in the middle of Delta and we have students and some places are masking and some places are not. And you can see the outcomes. And so I think, you know, people have been modeling based on data from day one. And what is just regrettable is that all of there are a bunch of scientific papers. And yet the ultimate challenge, changing human behavior, that still remains the ultimate challenge. And the other thing I would say is, we have tools that we could use, but we're not willing to use in various places, right? So some countries have done contact tracing very effectively because for whatever reason, they're able to, you know, do that. In the, in the U.S., we don't want to do contact tracing using phones, et cetera, mostly because people are worried that their personal data are being kept. Um, there are some technologies that don't even collect personal data, so they couldn't possibly be doing that. But people are still worried that that's what's happening because it could happen and because people's data are being kept by all kinds of, you know, um, services without them even realizing or consenting to it. So so I understand why people are worried, but it's resulting in more illness and death, which is so, so unfortunate. Um, yeah. And I think that's really probably at the heart of the problem is that 
if you set aside people who are in some kind of a tribal mode, us versus them, which is political, and if you set them aside, I think there are just a lot of people who have legitimate concerns, which are based on a lack of trust for a good reason. And so now somebody from their community has to go and persuade them that, yes, I understand that you're worried and that you don't trust and you maybe have a good historical reason why you don't trust. But in this case, it is right to trust and it is, you know, better for you. And that's just a really hard process because you can't do it just by email or with a billboard or a, you know, an announcement on social media. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that we miss two major things. One is it's an organism that is transmitted by air. So wearing yeah. masks substantially reduces, it cannot survive outside the human body for too long. So wearing a mask is, is substantially reduces transmission. The other thing, this might be a bit controversial. I, I felt that, I mean, we are seeing this now, we have thousands of variants all around the world. So the objective function for the world at the beginning was to reduce a viral load on the yeah. world. You can't really get Connecticut, you know, um, vaccinated uh, when you have 1.4 billion people in, in India uh, spreading the disease uh, and yeah. you get all sorts of uh, variants uh, going all over the place. So I think we seem to have missed uh, on both of these angles and I'm not sure where we are right now. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing about this one is it's it's not the last one. Uh, first of all, there'll be others and and it's not over. And in some sense, it isn't it's, it's never going to be over. It's just a question of are we you know, we're going to have annual immunizations. You know, it, will it be like the flu? Well, the flu kills very few people because it doesn't evolve into something really deadly. And we don't know about this one. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. But I think a lot of it boils down to this fundamentally human question, which is when you get vaccinated, you're not only getting vaccinated for yourself, you're getting vaccinated for the world. And that second part, people just don't have any incentive for it. They don't feel like that's important, many people. And you know, what does that say about us as a species that we just don't care about others? We only care empathy. about others in our tribe. Exactly, exactly, empathy. Where is the empathy um, and where is the trust? And you know, there are societies that have higher trust than others. There are some ways to increase trust, but we're really, we're at a difficult time historically because trust was going down even before the pandemic. And as we know, but there's a lot more polarization in general in the world. And this has not helped. And so, yeah, so that's why, I mean, that's why I work on technologies that, that will try to help because we all have to do something. I agree with you. Uh, I have to say, I like machines a lot more than people. Uh, <laughs> well, some machines, uh, you know, they're still very, you know, when my when my network is down or when I keep getting some error message, then I'm not a fan of machines. Um, but in an ideal world, uh, we can create machines that bring out the best in us and not the worst. But of course, machines are a reflection of us. Right. So when people talk about killer robots, well, where do you think killer robots come from? They don't come from robots. They come from people. Um, and so in that sense, technology, you know, like in the Black Mirror series, right, it's it's a reflection of us. And so how dark is it going to be? Well, that's entirely up to us. Right. Excellent, Maya. This has been great. Thanks so much for spending time with me. My pleasure. Thank you for the wonderful questions. Thank you.
Bye. Bye. This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info@scientificsense.com.